Now sit back and relax as you listen to the Texas State Sports Podcast. Find us online at TexasStateSports.com. Hey guys, what's happening? This is the Texas State Sports Podcast, and if you don't know, my name is Tyler Mayforth, and I am the sports editor and Texas State beat writer for the San Marcos Daily Record. Have you recovered from last week's win? If not, I cannot blame you, since it was absolutely wild. Texas State led 27-17 midway through the fourth quarter, but that's when South Alabama fought back and took its first lead of the game with a minute and 32 seconds left. But that's when the Bobcats worked some magic, converting a fourth and 24 when Tyler Jones found Ben Ija for a 51-yard gain, and soon after, Jason Dan kicked the game-winning 41-yard field goal to give Texas State a 33-31 win. That was the Bobcats' fifth win of the season, leaving them just one win shy of bowl eligibility. Texas State can become bowl eligible with a win this week at Idaho. This would be a perfect time to bring in my guest this week, as I am joined by Sean Kramer, who is the managing editor of TheVandalNation.com. Sean is a student at the University of Idaho, and if you hear what sounds like a football practice in the background, don't worry about it. Sean spoke to me from inside the Kibbe Dome as he watched the Vandals practice. Sean, as a student, it's had to be tough these last you know, a couple of years being a being a Vandals fan, just trying to cheer for them the last of the you know Rob Aiky years, and now with Paul Petrino trying to turn around. How's it been? I mean, has it been that bad, or do you see promise out of these kids? Uh, it's it's probably a little bit of the of the former. It has been that bad. Uh, the team hasn't really given uh, you know the fan base and, and the community a ton to cheer about, a lot of optimism to be happy about. But there have been flashes with the Petrino area, but there's also a lot of the fans um, who are, who still might be a little bitter at the firing of Rob Aiky, and a lot of the fans who look at the Paul Petrino era and say it's just the same old Vandals. Um, so really, it, it's up to this team and, and this program and, and this new coaching staff um, to really now and, and the final part of this season come up with a couple of signature wins, uh, come up with a couple wins that you know if this team finishes three nine or four and eight, um, that would really change the perception as opposed to. If the Vandals finished one and eleven again, what has been the difference now with the Petrino era, as you called it, compared to the Aiky, um era? If we want to say that, uh, the biggest the, the biggest difference is discipline. I mean, you you watch a practice that Rob Aiky operates, and then you watch a practice that Paul Petrino operates, and you'll notice a stark difference in terms of of the activity level of the assistant coaches, the noise level of the assistant coaches, and just the, the overall discipline that they try to instill in the program. Um, and you notice that on game day a little bit. There's there's a lot less mental error, um, but, you know, it's hard to translate on the field in terms of success with obviously the lack of depth that this team has right now, the youth that this team has right now, and just the overall lack of talent a little bit. And from what I understand, there were some players that really did not buy into a Petrino system, and they're no longer on the team. What does Petrino require of his, of his players in the system? Um, he just requires a commitment to to the system, a commitment to the to the gold, to the program, um, to the idea that he's trying to build here at the University of Idaho. Um, you know, Rob Aiky was was a big players coach, and and when he got fired, a lot of players felt betrayed, and a lot of players didn't want to, you know, join Petrino. So a lot of a lot of the talented players, like uh, a Corel Kearney or a 
or uh, Tracy Carter, you know, players like that. So there were up to 20-plus players uh, from last season who departed from the program, and it's hurt a little bit in the depth, but the way Petrino looks at it is in the long term, he's going to have the guys uh, who wants to be here. And this is a very young team. This team has played, um, I think if you include redshirt freshmen, up to 15 redshirt and true freshmen, um, three of them on the defensive line alone. Obviously the starting quarterback, who will not play on Saturday because of an injury, but who has started before uh, Chow Chow's redshirt freshman. So it's a really young team, a depth-tested team, but the players – the players who are still here are the ones who have bought in. So this isn't going to be the team that Texas State faced last year and beat 34 no, not even at Bobcat Stadium. No, not even close. Uh, you look at the uh, the front seven, it's completely different. None of the linebackers are back. Vincent Mayo is gone. The secondary, Aaron Grimes, Tracy Carter is gone. The quarterback, the biggest difference, Dominique Blackman, gone. Um, uh, a lot of new faces will be uh, will be on the field on Saturday compared to the team that uh, beat Idaho 38 to seven last season. And uh, yes, 38 to seven. Um, and you know, speaking of the quarterback situation, I saw on your report on uh, VandalNation.com that uh, Taylor Davis is expected to start. He started his first game last week against, um, I believe it was against Ole Miss. What does Taylor Davis do differently that Texas A might need to work out, look out for if they were expecting Chad out there? You know, if they were second chat out there, they would expect up to 15 quarterback runs in the game, both designed runs and just him taking off and scrambling. Um, it is pretty much kind of a true option offense when Chad Chalice is out, was out there, uh, a read option offense, that is. Um, so they'll set everything up with the quarterback runs and the, and the running back runs. But um, when Taylor Davis is out there, it's more of a pocket-based system. Um, he, he, can, he can get out of the pocket a little bit. He likes to move around a little bit. But he's he's kind of the bigger frame guy, so he's really more comfortable sitting in the pocket and delivering it, you know, strong arm down the field. So that's what – and Texas State will have the film from Ole Miss. And Taylor Davis played three-plus quarters at Arkansas State. So really uh, what Idaho is doing offensively right now is pretty solidified with Taylor Davis. And it seems as if there is a running back by committee right there. I see James Baker as their leading rush with 372 yards, but only two starts. You know, Jarrell Brown only has one start, but he has 128 yards. Is that true? Is there just a running back by committee? Anyone can do anything in that system? Um, really, it's, it's based on, on how they practice. Uh, that's what Paul Petrino says. He, he puts all the running backs out there. He'll give them kind of equal reps during the week, but whoever kind of practices better is the, is the one who will go. And then when he gets into the game, he'll kind of give them all some, some carries in the first quarter, and then, and then it's kind of the hot hand. But the last couple of weeks, it has been James Baker. Uh, at Arkansas State, James Baker really broke out, has ran well. He's ran well previously this year. And I think Petrino's kind of realized who his most talented and experienced guy is, and that is certainly James Baker right now. He's the hardest runner. Um, he's got success and speed, and he's powerful in between the tackles. So I, I would expect James Baker to get the plus for a, a carries on Saturday. And when they're throwing the ball, I, I see, what, six different guys with, Ten or more catches, but then Desmond Epps, 582 uh, yards. What does he do that makes him the number one option? He's clearly the number one option because of, of his commitment to, to meticulous route running, of his speed. Um, he's just really fast. He'll, he's not afraid to go over the middle, take a ball, and then try to catch it outfield. Um, he gets down the field really quickly, and he's just an overall hard worker. And he's the guy who will stay after practice and, and run extra routes and, and really pay attention to what he's doing. And so he's that kind of guy. So that kind of what sets him apart. 
Um, other guys, Najee Lovett, it's a little bit fast, but, uh, you know, for some reason, you know, the revolving door at quarterback might have hurt him a little bit. He had a good rapport uh, with Dominic Blackman last season, but not so much with the guys this season. Um, and then um, it's it's really just a crapshoot after that with guys like Deion Watson and, and Roman Runner and Trent Cowan of, of uh, who he wants to, to throw out there to catch balls. Uh, there's a lot of depth on the wide receiver core. There's nobody really sticking out after Kevin that. And one thing I saw on your blog recently to kind of switch gears, you got an exclusive interview with uh, the Sunbelt Commissioner, Carl Benson. Um, what yes, was some I, of your major takeaways from uh, discussing with Carl about the, the future of the conference and uh, what he expects out of the Sunbelt, I guess, in that future? Well, the two major takeaways uh, I took out was, uh, A, uh, who Carl Benson expects the 12th member of the Sunbelt to be. And that really came away with the impression that he wants James Madison to be that school. Of course, James Madison has conducted their FBS feasibility study and are expected to announce their decision after the new year. It's expected that they're going to say they want to go FBS. And if that's the case, um, they're probably going to want a Conference USA invite, but I'm sure Carl Benson um, would very much want them to be a part of the Sun Belt because they fit um, not only the sixth member of the East in football, but they would be the sixth member of the East in all other sports as well. Um, if not, I think he would look toward Liberty um, as his second option. He brought up Liberty. He brought up Jacksonville State and some other schools in, in the eastern United States that are really looking um, at the Sun Belt. Um, he dismissed the notion that New Mexico State could be added in all sorts again because of the geographic footprint. The the second the second thing I took away was really how he talked about how the Sun Belt needs to position itself here in the, in the near future starting next year. Um, in the group of five. I mean, he talked about in the entire history of Sunbelt football, they really have not had a top 25 consistent flagship program like in the WAC. He had Fresno State, Boise State, Nevada, Hawaii. He had all these teams who had runs and competed for BSES Bulls, and that's never happened in the Sunbelt. So he talked about the need for the Sunbelt to really get that, and he talked about the need for the Sunbelt to get that by eliminating money games. Um, he talked about how a majority of the teams in the Sun Belt were addicted to the million-dollar guarantees. I mean, we're going to see it with Idaho here in a couple of weeks when they go down to Florida State for $950,000 and USC in two years for $1 million. And you see that with Troy. I mean, Texas State played some of those games. Um, all the other schools in the Sun Belt have played those games, and he really wants those to maybe not get eliminated but to get reduced uh, to a, to a matter of, so the teams in the Sun Belt can play competitive out-of-conference schedules that will set them up for some top 25 consideration if, if they can have runs like Arkansas State has, you know, the last couple of years. And from from your standpoint, does Idaho truly fit in the Sun Belt? I know they brought in New Mexico State to fill out, you know, to bring them up to where they can get near 12 and have that conference championship game. But does Idaho fit? what you find in Carl's mind is that Sunbelt mentality, that Sunbelt footprint, if have you. I mean, it seems like it's starting yeah, to cross the yeah, right now. He talked about the footprint and, and, and the need for the Sunbelt to have a footprint, um, but he emphasized more the need for the Sunbelt to have a conference championship game, uh, for the Sunbelt to have 12 teams, uh, to, to have divisions and play a conference championship game, and, and, and really what helped Idaho um, was the fact that it was already an established FBS program. Uh, they didn't have to dip into the SES and transition um, a number of programs in order to fill out, you know, 12. Um, he had two in the West that he was familiar with for his time in the WAC. 
And and really, Idaho is, is going to be committed to the Sun Belt for as long as they can. I mean, Rob Spear has talked about wanting a conference out in the West, um, but really that's not going to happen anytime soon. I wouldn't say within the next five years at least. Um, so I'd say in terms of Idaho staying FBS, it, it is a really good fit. I mean, football programs charter flights, um, so it's not, and the Sun Belt's going to help even that out with some revenue sharing. So that's not going to be that huge of an issue. Um, but I do think Idaho does provide something to the Sun Belt and being an established FBS program. How long do you think it's going to take for Paul Petrino to kind of turn that program around, to get them back to where they're going to make another bowl run like they did not too long ago? I, you know, I want to, I really want to look at the at the schedule next season. I mean, you really you look at schools like Georgia Southern is going to be on there, Appalachian State is going to be on there, Western Michigan is going to be on there, and just the entire Sun Belt schedule. Uh, just because, really, maybe you look at Arkansas State – you know, Idaho avoids Louisiana Lafayette next season. There's just such an open kind of race and competition in the Sun Belt Conference. I mean, it could happen as soon as next season. There's still going to be a lot of youth. So maybe, you know, Idaho can will probably compete anywhere from the four to six win range next season. Um, but maybe by 2015, um, really, when they're able to finally get six home games instead of just five, um, and they schedule an easy FCS opponent. I mean, I know in 2015 they have two money games that they're going to lose USC and Auburn. Um, but it comes down to being able to win in conference. And when you're competitive out of conference games, and I think in the next couple of years that might be feasible just because of, of how wide open their schedule is going to be. And for right now, Texas State is a non-conference game for the Vandals after last year being a conference game in the WAC, next year being a conference game in the Sun Belt. But in 2013, you know, it's a non-conference game, and I think I saw the, the the betting line in Las Vegas opened at Texas State as a 13-point favorite going into the Kibbe Dome. It's, it has since dropped to 10. Would you imagine it dropping even further? Do you think Idaho can give the Bobcats mm-hmm. the game, or do you think it's going to push a little bit higher to where you think that, you know, maybe think, Texas State will outclass Idaho this year? I think I think 10 points for Texas State is actually pretty appropriate. Idaho has played well in the Kibbe Dome. Um, obviously, with the exception of Fresno State being, you know, the top 20 team in the country that they are, but you also look at a program like Northern Illinois, who's one spot below Fresno State, and they came in here and they struggled a little bit. Um, you know, a lot of it is the travel. It's, it's, it's unorthodox travel uh, to get to Moscow, Idaho, because you have to fly. A lot of teams fly into Spokane, Washington, which is uh, um, right by, it's about a five-hour drive away from Seattle, and it's about an hour and a half drive away from uh, Moscow, Idaho. So you have to fly into Spokane, and then you have to drive down to Moscow, Idaho, an hour and a half to get there. Uh, Northern Illinois flew into Spokane, and they drove two hours down to a town called Lewiston, Idaho, and then drive back up to Moscow the day before, so that might have hurt them even more. Um, so sometimes teams uh, who've never been to Idaho before struggle with it. Um, and, and as I said before, Idaho played relatively well at home. They played really competitive at home. They beat Temple, a BCS um, AQ team here. Um, so I, I do think 10 points is, is, is pretty accurate, but – Texas State is obviously a team that's a more established program. They have more talent, um, and they're they're kind of established with with Coach Fran. Um, so I, I do think it were, uh, but I would expect that Texas State would be that team somewhere along the lines of a of a thirty one twenty one Texas State win would would probably sound about right to me. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Texas State Sports Podcast. I would like to thank Sean Kramer of thevandalnation.com for speaking with me about the Idaho Vandals and the future of the Sunbelt Conference. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to email me at teamafourth at sammarcosrecord.com 
Find me on Twitter at SMDRTyler or leave a comment on our Facebook fan page, which can be found by searching Texas State Sports. Be sure to follow my coverage all season long, but especially this week, as we try to find out if Texas State can become bowl eligible for the first time in program history. As always, you can find my coverage online at sammarcosrecord.com or on the blog at texasstatesports.com. <laughs>